This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we dive into some of the midrash surrounding the story of the binding of Isaac. What really happened to Isaac on that mountain? And what does this have to do with Isaac's blindness? Oh, yes. I can remember uh, learning what we're going to share today. I learned it in a discussion group. Um, and I remember the first time I... I encountered this, uh, I just learning the midrash surrounding this story. I just started full on weeping when I started just reading and considering the implications. It was so good. So good. It's probably been one of my favorite lessons that I have learned just kind of like on my own. Like I have an amazing, uh, uh set of experiences and lessons from Ray and our time in Egypt or, uh, Israel and Turkey like I, I've got all kinds of fantastic things, and those are special. Those are something that are in a different category. But then there are like lessons that you learn. You learn from books. You learn from study. And this is just one of those things that just just jumped up and smacked me out of nowhere in a place that was totally unexpected, and just absolutely loved it. So, uh, this this little lesson comes with a, a tad bit of backstory. So we did session. One Brent back in 2016. We've got an episode. What was the episode number that we talked about the binding of Isaac? What are we dealing with here? That would have been episode 11. Here I am. Episode 11. Here I am. We talked about the chiasm uh, in that story. Just wonderful. Uh, favorite conversation. Foreman has some incredible teaching on it over at Aleph Beta. Might as well plug that again uh, in the in the show notes uh, in the links there. Uh, Brent will link episode eleven, link Aleph Beta, just some great teaching there. Uh, so we were we were at one of this was back in 2016. We had just started the podcast. I was still doing discussions. Brent, this was before I moved, before uh, kind of my new role and job as president of Impact took me in a different direction. I had to stop. This was way back at the beginning. So I have this discussion group uh, in Pullman, Washington with uh, Washington State students. I, I was there. Uh, we were digging into this story. I just had a great crew of students, not a massive uh, number of them, but just a really cool uh, havara group of, of students. One of them, um, she would not, I, I don't believe she would have called herself a, a follower of Jesus, a, a believer, um, but she was the daughter of a rabbi. I can't remember if he was a messianic rabbi or not. None of these things really matter to me. Um, but he, he, if I remember right, he was over and uh, he was, he was based over in, in Israel and, and that whole region. Um, he might've, I can't remember where he was at, but really intimidating to have her in my discussion group. Cause I was always <laughs> like aware that she knew a lot of little tidbits or at least she had access to. Like, she was almost, I feel like, maybe um, just leaning into and learning more and more about her Jewish faith. Uh, and Bema was kind of allowing her and giving her a, a beautiful excuse to, to do that. And I, I loved that. But knowing she had this rabbi as a father, boy, I tell you, anytime that she was in the middle of class and texting on her phone, <laughs> talk about making you nervous. I was always like, who are you texting? <laughs> 
you're texting your dad. Um, so uh, probably drove her nuts. But uh, really, always like. Anyway, we're in this. We're in this class. In this discussion group, uh, we're talking about. Um, I think we were one episode past episode eleven. I think we might have been talking about episode twelve. And somebody in the group, not her, but somebody else, raises their hand, uh, or maybe they didn't, but they, they asked the question. They said, Marty, I'm, I'm back on the last passage, and I want to know, why, why, why does Isaac not come down the mountain with Abraham? And I was like, what? And they're like, why doesn't Isaac come down the mountain with Abraham? And I'm I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, of course he comes down the mountain. Like, hey, no, 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 no. You've taught me to look at the text and to notice like the details. And it's very like straightforward. Isaac doesn't come down the mountain with Abraham. And I was like, what? And that sounded like so, so good, so juicy, so biblical that I was just like, I I dove in there. And sure enough, uh, Brent, go ahead and read us. Genesis 22, and give us that verse 19. So this is, you know, at the end of, at the end of that whole story. Then Avraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Avraham stayed in Beersheba. Very particular, who are the characters in that paragraph, Brent? Avraham and his servants. Avraham and his servants, and not a mention of who? No Isaac anywhere. No Isaac anywhere. And just to review, like the story is very clear all the way up to this point, Isaac's very prevalent. Can you read us? Uh, let's do verses three through eight. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Avraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Avraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Avraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. All right, so there's twice, and that was a part of the chiasm, if you remember back to episode 11. The two of them went on together are both parts of, uh, you know, repeated parts of the chiasm on either side of the chiasm, but but elsewhere, like, uh, you know, right where you started, Brent, early the next morning, Avraham got up, uh, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants, his son, Isaac, you know, and, and it, this story is very adamant, like all throughout there, kept mentioning Avraham and his son, Isaac, Isaac and Avraham and the servants. And then when they leave the servants, it's Isaac and Abraham. But then at the end of that, at the end of that, can you can you read us just to remind us? Give us verse nineteen one more time. Then Avraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Avraham stayed in Beersheba. I mean, that's just so. When my when that student asked me that, I was like, oh my goodness, there has to be. I, I was just so convinced reading that verse. I'm like, there has to be midrash about this, and and I can't remember if I asked or if I looked over, but uh, that gal in my discussion group was was texting. I'm like, are you, are you asking your dad? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, excellent. If he texts you back, I want to know what he says, if there's anything. So we went out with the class, not, not very long later. She says, Hey, my dad texted me back. He said that in fact, 
there are there's two different dominant uh, streams of midrash surrounding this idea. And I'm like, oh, goody, we're about ready to learn something new. She said, uh, the kind of the, the the less popular version, according to my father, is that that Isaac that Abraham actually did sac he went through with the sacrifice and actually sacrificed Isaac. Um, that Isaac was obedient even to the point of death and was was actually sacrificed. And then three days later, according to this midrash, three days later he rises from the dead. There's a resurrection. Three days later, which for all of us Jesus followers, if all the lights on your dashboard are not blinking at this moment, you, it's so, so helpful. When does that Midrash date to? Do you happen to know? I don't have the exact quotation, um, and I don't know where it traces back to, but I want to say it was early because I remember thinking about the passage in Hebrews, and I remember trying to track that down. And I believe that concept and that midrash was super early. Uh, can you give us the verse I'm thinking about, Brent? Read us uh, Hebrews 11, uh, somewhere in the middle there, where it talks about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Yeah. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Okay, and and again, there's a you know, there's all these expressions there in the Greek in a manner of speaking, what's actually literally being said there by the author of Hebrews. I think that that could be uh, a definite play on, in my mind, it seems more obvious to me, that's a play on that Midrashic thought. How far does that Midrash go back? Who exactly quoted it? I wanted to say that one was really, really early. Um, the the other Midrash extreme, I don't think is as early, at least in its fully developed, um, the fully developedness we're going to discuss today. I think the Midrash we'll discuss today is a little bit later. But that Midrash feels to me to be super early. And again, if you remember, one of the common emails I got, Brent, um, when we were going through session three, and I would talk about uh, Jesus talking about how he would be dead and three days later, you know, he would rise um, and, and reference his resurrection. And one of the big things that I always mentioned that is that Jesus was never wearing his what? Ooh. I always called like, uh, whenever Jesus would talk about this, I'd always be like, I don't think he's saying this because he's putting on his... Oh, God goggles. God goggles, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And a lot of people like... A lot of people love that, but a lot of people would also email me and go, well, I don't think that's true because there's no way he could say this, you know, all, these things if he didn't have his God goggles on. And one of the things they would bring up is his reference to the resurrection, which there's all kinds of textual criticism that we need, we would need to engage about. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to go there today, but there's all kinds of layers to that. But one, I mean, one reason why Jesus could say that is if there's any kind of Mishnah era second temple conversation swirling about Isaac uh, and the binding of Isaac and a three-day resurrection. It's not crazy that Jesus would be able to find things. There's references in the prophets to three days that God will do things on three days. It's not crazy. Nevertheless, I'm really getting sidetracked here, Brent. Better pull me back to the real passage. But I I, I say all that to say what an interesting little midrash. However, uh, she went on. And she said, my dad says there's a second stream that's a little bit more popular. Uh, and this 
stream of Midrash says that Isaac was so traumatized by what happened on top of the mountain, which I just pause mid-sentence right there in her explanation, and I go, well, yeah. <laughs> like, have you ever wrestled with what it must have been like to have been Isaac on top of that mountain as we go through that story? We always talk about uh, you know, Avraham, and we talked about what God was teaching Avraham. But then there's this other player in the story, which is most definitely Isaac. Does that always seem like an interesting um, thought process for you, Brent? Yeah. And like, I'm looking at, I'm looking at this passage again, and it does kind of seem like, like it, it explicitly says, Avraham returned to his servants. So we have that. But in between, it seems like Isaac kind of recedes into the background where he's sort of referenced by Avraham and by the angel, but he's not actually doing anything. Sure. Yeah, that's actually interesting as you look at that in the language. Yeah, sure. Avraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it. And like, I mean, obviously Avraham is the the father here. So like whatever he does is going to be representative of the group or on behalf of the group or whatever. Right. Right. But it's just because Isaac is explicitly mentioned so frequently up to that point, it just makes it stand out a little more, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. And and all of this is super understandable. Like, if we'll quit making this just some, like, religious fantasy story, and we'll actually let this be, like, a real story that we're supposed to be getting pulled into, like everything else we study in the scriptures, like, you're supposed to be drawn into the story, like, that is an unbelievably traumatic, and I'm going to, I'm going to, specifically pinpoint religiously traumatic experience. And and that was important as I immediately started like listening to this midrash for the very first time as she's talking to her dad. Like I immediately started to associate how important this story is and was for so many of us that have our own stories of trauma at the hands of bad readings of the Bible, bad understandings about who God is. Like here's Avraham having to go through his own journey with God, and there's that story, but that story is without a doubt impacting a son who is very directly involved in this spiritual journey of his father. So uh, so, so she went on. She said this, this Midrash says that he's so traumatized that he doesn't come down the mountain with his dad, that he runs off. Like he separates himself from his father, says, I, I, I can't. Now, see, the other stream of Midrash talks about Isaac's obedience, Brent. It, the other Midrash, it talks about his resurrection. It, it's the stream of Midrash that says that like Isaac tied his own, like he tied his own hands up. He was one that laid himself on the altar, essentially. Like he was the one that was so obedient. Like he was going to, he was actually the person of even greater faith than Abraham was Isaac. And because of his faith, he experiences, because of his obedience, his, his, his obedience and faith, because of that, he gets, he, he gets to experience resurrection, which is a beautiful midrash. I'm not taking anything away from The other side is a little bit more human. It's a little bit more flesh and blood. It's a little bit more real to me. 
um, it's connected to a little bit more raw human experience and emotion. So it says that he took off and he he bails and and does not go home with uh, with his father, which is interesting because. I mean, you have the end of chapter 22, but then the narrative picks up at the beginning of chapter 23, and, and read for me what the first two verses of chapter 23 are. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Avraham went to mourn for Sarah to weep over her. Okay, so so Sarah dies... And the Midrash goes different directions. Some Midrash says that she dies while Avraham is gone with Isaac, that she's dead when they get back. Um, some Midrash doesn't say that. But if Isaac doesn't come back home, his mother dies. Like, he never goes back to see his mom. His mom dies before he's able to ever get back. And, like, just imagine all the trauma and the I – don't, I don't know if I want to call it dysfunction. I don't know if that's the right word – but the very human craziness that everybody is experiencing in this story, the pain, the disruption, the the heartache, all of that kind of... But what else do you see in those two verses, Brent, as you look at that? Is there anything that, that jumps out to you? Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiryat Arva, which is Hebron, which is that where they're at? Can you remember, Brent? Do you remember where they're at in the story? Uh, I do not. At some point, they're going to end up at Beer Shiva. That's where Avraham is staying. That's where I understand they're at when he's told to go sacrifice. But what's the? What about the next verse? Tell me what, what sounds funny to you about this. And Avraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. What is odd about that to you, Brent? Um, it seems repetitive, I guess. And do you see anything else? And Avraham went to mourn for Sarah. I guess he wasn't there. He's not with Sarah. Mm. Like whatever happens, he goes. I remember doing my memorization of this passage this year. And this is not how the Bible typically talks about husbands mourning their wives. Like the wife dies and the husband might mourn her, but it, it, he, they don't go to mourn her. The language here suggests that he's, that she's at Kiryat Arba. And I'm sure there's, I don't know, the there's so many things I don't know, which by the way, Brent, we don't link the exact Midrash for these episodes, and I do that on purpose, because there's so many things, I think I've said this, I'm going to say this again, Brent, there's so many things I don't know, I am not trained to handle the Midrash, I simply want to pass on beautiful little nuggets that I've learned from somebody else, because if I start quoting Midrash and dealing with Midrash, I am now out of my league and and I am not trained to actually interpret this stuff, but it's so much fun to go learn it and to go study it. And if I can tell you like where to look and which questions ask, that's what we're going for here. So I'm sure the Midrash has all kinds of stuff about this, Brent. And I don't know what it is, but when I read that, I think to myself, like, what was it like? What did what did Abraham tell Sarah before he set out to kill her son? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right? Like, what was that conversation like? Did he say anything? Did she catch wind of it? Um, or did he tell her? And what was that like? Because I, I would imagine that would give her reason to get up and move somewhere else to go to Hebron, to not be... Can you, can you feel the family strife? Can you feel the strain and the tension 
and the and the the trauma and oh my goodness like but he goes he goes to mourn for Sarah his wife so so there's all kinds of there's all kinds of and then the next chapter Brent chapter 24 is just tell me like the big idea what's going on in chapter 24 uh it's when when uh, they're finding a wife for Isaac they're, they're finding a wife for Isaac which all of a sudden, I think that's when I started like just breaking down when I started considering this midrash. Because if they go, like I've always read that story and I assumed that Isaac was with them. Like Isaac was at home. It was time for him to find a wife. But okay, if he didn't come back with his dad, he's not living at home. His mom has died. Avraham's alone on his own and he sends away for a wife he sends his servant to find a wife for a son, Brent, who's no longer even at home. And Avraham's not even going to know if his son is ever going to come back home. And yet he sends Eliezer away, which now explains why Eliezer's conversation with Avraham is, okay, but what if she doesn't want to come back with me? Should I just go take Isaac to her? Right. Which makes sense. He's like, well, what if she doesn't want to come back? to a home where she doesn't know if her husband's ever coming back to. Would you like me to, because we know Isaac's not coming back here, so do you want me to go get Isaac and take him to her? Isaac's like, and 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 Abraham says, no, absolutely not. You bring her back here. And then, and then as I, and, and you know the thing about the Midrash, Brent, the thing that's always so frustrating is that it just feels so it just feels so arbitrary. Like it just feels like they take one detail, like this one verse about, well, Isaac didn't come down the mountain. And you're like, well, it doesn't say he didn't come down the mountain, Marty. And there's a whole lot of projection going on here. And a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't know. And the Midrash is just making up all this story. And and yet the more and more I deal with the Midrash, the more and more convinced I become that it's hardly ever making up story it's always referencing stuff that we've always glo- just glossed over in the text. Brent, can you read for me verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 62? Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. The text stinking tells us he's not living at home. <laughs> it, uh, when I found that, I like just fell out of my chair that night because the text even tells us he's not at home. He's been living in Bier La- The Midrash didn't make this up. It's sitting right there in the middle of the Bible. He's not even living at home. Now, by the way, where is Bier Lacharoy, Brent? Uh, Can you remember that? We've seen that in the text before. Well, in the Negev, it says. Um, sure. I'm not who, sure who, where. Who is connected to Bier Lacharoy? That's a well. Bier means well. Lacharoy, somebody named the well, Bier Lacharoy. Who was it? Uh, was it Abraham? Nope, but it's somebody connected with Abraham. Hmm. I don't remember. It was somebody that was sent away with her son, and she looked up and saw a well, and she named the well Bier Lacharoy, the Lord who sees me. She said oh. her name was Hagar, and her son was Ishmael. And so it makes all kinds of weird poetic sense that Isaac runs off to go live with his whatever you want, his stepmom, his half mom. I, I don't know how that works in that culture. Um, uh, Hagar. Now, what the Midrash actually says uh, in a weird twist is that he goes to live with, of all people, Melchizedek, speaking of the book of Hebrews, 
So it says that Isaac goes and he lives with Melchizedek during this time. But nevertheless, I digress. More Midrash that I'm not trying to talk about. But the Midrash is so much fun. But he's living in Bier Lacharoy. And let's just let's just read this. Let's read this section here. Let's pick up where Rivka agrees to go back, agrees to be married to Isaac, and apparently agrees to marry a man that she's not even sure if he's going to be at home when she gets there. Okay, so let's set the stage. She just said she's willing to do this, go on this crazy adventure. And Eliezer has taken her back home. Go ahead and pick up in verse 59 of chapter 24, Brent. So they sent their sister Rivka on her way, along with her nurse and Avraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rivka and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rivka and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rivka and left. Now Isaac had come from uh, Beer Lahairoi. I can't remember how you said that. Uh, For he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you here. So he goes out, he's come up from Beer Lacharoy. Now, if you look at the map, if you assume that Avraham's living in Beer Sheva and he sent his servant all the way, way up north to Haran to get a wife. And now they're coming back from Haran to where, Brent? Uh, to, well, I guess to Beer Sheva, but yep. Beer Lacharoy is on the way. No, that's exactly my point. He is. He's coming from Bier Lacharoy. He's been living. Bier Lacharoy is down towards, more towards Egypt. It's going to be west and south of Bier Sheva. And Haran's going to be dead north. And for some reason, Isaac is up at least north enough of Bier Sheva that he is intercepting them. And the phrase there, he was, what was he doing in the field, Brent? What does it say in your English translation? Uh, he says he went out to the field one evening to meditate. To meditate. And what that word actually means in the Hebrew, if you look it up, is to muse pensively, which is a different image than just meditate. He is out there a little confounded, a little torn up, having uh, whatever you want to call that. He is out in a field having himself a moment. And let's pick up where you left off. The footnote on that does say that the Hebrew, uh, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. So yep, uh, they're, they're hedging a little bit. Uh, so he went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rivka also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Can you catch like how the gravitas of that. Like if we understand some of the Midrashic context here, like this isn't just like she sees somebody coming in the field. She's like, who is that? The servant's like, it's Isaac. Like if all this stuff is true, can you imagine Eliezer's like, that's Isaac. Who Who's this man coming? I, I just, I, I imagine Eliezer like open mouth. That's him. Like that's your husband. <laughs> He's he, for whatever reason, He's in the middle of this field. That's him coming. I just absolutely, I just absolutely love that. Nevertheless, go ahead. Yeah. Then and just says, then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Is that all I gave you to read? Uh, yeah. There's one more verse. Isaac, yeah, go, go ahead. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rivka. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Oh, just such a, I, I am so moved by that story. And let me be really clear here. I recently... Um, a while ago on Twitter, somebody contacted me 
because of my treatment on Abraham. And I, I hope I was more clear than this, but they were early on in the story, and they felt like one of the things that I was saying was that everything that Avraham did was like our righteous example. Like we should look at the life of Avraham and all of his actions and say, you know what, that's what, that's the model for faith. And and I definitely want to, want to honor Avraham as the father of our faith. I think that's very clear in the scripture. He's the father of our faith. But I never wanted to imply that everything he ever did and all of his actions, he's, Avraham's great. He's no Jesus. Um, that all of his actions were the things that we're supposed to emulate. What we see so often is Avraham's humanity. Like, I think we said often throughout session one that Avraham was far from perfect, right, Brent? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, we do not want to insinuate that, like, everything Avraham does is the model. Sometimes it's the model for what not to do. Like, don't go down to Egypt. Uh, Don't try to pawn your wife off because it's the only way that you can see making ends meet. Like, there are so many things that he does, like, that are not necessarily the model. But even, like, they don't fit into nice binary categories, right? Like... It's not like, well, those actions were all bad, and these actions over here were all good. No, he's just a human being trying to figure out how to walk with God and making a ton of mistakes. And in this case, like, I'm not, I'm trying to withhold judgment here, Brent. I don't know. Like, I read the story. It seems like God asked him to do this whole binding of Isaac thing. That seems like a test from God. Like, as I read the story, it sure seems like that was prompted by God to ask him and invite him to do those things. We talked about that in session one. At the same time, when I when I consider Isaac, I hear and I consider somebody who has been impacted, who has experienced religious trauma at the hands of parents, at the hands of a father who's trying to figure out how to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his might, and he's trying to do the right thing, and yet at the same time, caused traumatic harm to his child. I am not saying yes. I'm not saying no. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying how many of us have experienced that reality? Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah. When I when I see this story, I, I, I try to withhold judgment of well, what did Abraham do right and what did Abraham do wrong? All I know is that Isaac had an experience like so many of us had. I know that my parents, for the most part, were trying to do the best job they they could with faith. They were trying to hand me, and it came out through the lens of fundamentalist Christianity and all this stuff that I had to deconstruct later. And there are things, and I didn't suffer nearly the kind of trauma that so many people had to. I I totally understand that. But there are things that I had to deconstruct. I will call it, I'll use the term loosely and lightly, I had to deconstruct some religious traumatic experience from my own story. And and yet, and I love teaching this to a room not full of college students, but to a room full of their parents, because there are so many of them that have adolescent or late adolescent or young adult or (laughs) kids that are in their 30s and 40s, and they look back and they go, did I 
did I screw up? I was trying to do, I had my Abraham on the mountain moment. I was trying to do what God asked me to do. I don't know if I did it right or wrong. I know that God met me, but I don't know what happened to my kids. And this story, I look at this story and again, I see, uh, I see Avram and I'm not saying that he's the model of faith in this story. What I'm saying is he's a man who trusts the story. Like, the, uh, it is so moving to me. Abraham could have looked at this and went, man, I got, I jacked this all up. My family's destroyed. My wife has died. She never got to say goodbye to her son. My son doesn't even want to talk to me anymore. And he could have just thrown in the towel. And, and yet Avraham sends Eliezer to get a wife for his son because that's his job as a dad. He just keeps trying to do the best job that he can and keeps believing in love and trust and acceptance and second chances and forgiveness. And however the story works, Isaac sees it. He sees the fruit. He doesn't know all the backstory, just like we talked about with Joseph. Joseph didn't know all the backstory with his dad. Isaac Isaac doesn't know all the backstory with his dad Abraham. He doesn't know all the he doesn't know the story of Rivka yet. He doesn't know all the things that happened with Eliezer at the well. But there's something about what his dad is doing and who Rivka is and these people who are willing to trust what God's doing in the world and they're showing up imperfect, getting it wrong, but they're showing up and there's something about it that Isaac sees and he says if Man, if this is what God is doing in the world, and he goes back home and he lives with Rivka and his mother, it's like, it's just such a good story. Not of, and this isn't like a formula. It's not a guarantee that if you screwed, you know, if you feel like you screwed your kids up and you just hang in there like all the Isaacs come back home. Nope. Sometimes Isaacs don't come back home. There's no guarantee here in this story that this is some formula that works. But it's a it's this ancient story of an experience that I find unbelievably moving and compelling. And I'll end with just a little bit more midrash because it's just because it's moving and compelling doesn't mean that it's like oh happy ending everything got put back together. Nope, there's still ripple effects. There's still trauma. There's still therapy that's needed. So the Midrash will go on to say that while Isaac was lying on the altar, and I could be butchering this Midrash. So again, one of the reasons why we don't work directly with it and link it because I have no business making declarative statements. But the Midrash tells a story about how the angels were watching as, as Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, and they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what God was up to. They didn't know what was around the next corner. And so they're crying. They're they're weeping, the angels are. And some of the tears of the angels fall into the eyes of Isaac as he lays there on the altar. And the Midrash says, those tears give Isaac a ayin ra. Do you remember the phrase ayin tova and ayin ra? Brent, where did that show up? What is that? Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about it um, in the Gospels. Yep. Where Jesus is talking about, you know, how you, how you view people, whether you have a good eye or a bad eye. Right. And the good eye was, what did that mean? To have a good eye. Like to see people in a favorable light. Yes. To, to be generous with your perspective, 
to believe that there was more than enough in the world to go around, to have a, a perspective of, of abundance rather than a bad eye, which would be a perspective of, of, you know, not enough. Like I need to, I need to hold things selfishly for myself because if I don't, I'm not going to have enough. Right. That scarcity worldview in comparison to an abundance worldview, a, a worldview that chooses to see the good rather than a worldview that chooses to see the bad. And the Midrash acknowledges this experience with Isaac. And it says, as the, as the angels cried, this is where Isaac got his, if you remember his, g- give me uh, the opening verse of chapter 27, Brent. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see. All right. So there's that phrase, like when he's old and his, and it talks about his blindness. And of course we think physical blindness, that's not necessarily incorrect, but the Midrash says there was so much more. It was more than just a physical blindness. It was also a bad eye from his traumatic experiences that caused him to see the world in a negative, that trauma caused him to see an, an understandable trauma. That's not a, I'm not blaming Isaac. <laughs> I'm not blaming Isaac. Like he should, he should have had a good eye. He should have chosen. No, 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 no. Sometimes our trauma and our life circumstances affect us in a way that's not just like snap your fingers and redeem it. Sometimes it deeply scars us and impacts us. And here is Isaac with his trauma and yet this trauma is going to continue to play a part. Like we're kind of all over the place historically in these episodes here in session six, but we've already talked about what happens with Jacob and Jacob and Esau and how Isaac, Isaac, the blind one, Isaac with a tainted perspective, Isaac with potentially a bad eye, Isaac with bad eyes who who names Esau, Esau, but names Jacob, Jacob. And, and if you remember a Rivka who refuses to, like you can see you can see the dysfunction. You can see the trauma having consequences. You can see the real life experiences here. And and again, I just want to take two steps back and go, I'm not judging that. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying it. it is. Like if we can start relating to the book of Genesis as like, I have these experiences. This is what life is like for me then what we can see is that God never leaves us in the midst of that. And there's always room to trust the story and always ways that the story can be redeemed. And we can even learn like little tricks, uh, tricks of the trade along the way of how to redeem those stories, not in a formulaic, this is how you get rid of your bad eye, but just in an acknowledgement that there, there is trauma and there are bad eyes. And yet it doesn't mean that the story is over. It doesn't define where the story has to end but the story can keep going. You can keep sending away for a wife, for a son who's not even home. Like you can hang on to the narrative of God, trusting that somewhere like love and light and truth and grace and forgiveness, trust the story, even when you've messed up, trust the story, even when it's not pretty, trust the story, even when it's like the most distrust the story because there's still goodness waiting. Sometimes Isaac's hanging out in a field north of ha- north of home, way north of his home. Sometimes we're in the right place at just the right time, and God shows up and breaks into our story and gives us a little bit of light and a little bit of hope and keeps the thing going. Ah, there's just so much in here. I just, I just love so much. So I'm going to stop Brent and let you wrap up the episode. What do you, what, what do you think about all that? Yeah. I, so I was looking at the, um, you know, that meditate word, uh, the NET translates it relax. 
apparently, uh, and, and in their notes, they say, you know, they point to the NASB and NIV as translating it, meditate, and they say that NRSV translates it to walk. So it's just kind of this like, you know, casual, relaxed, I don't quite know what I'm doing here. But I just wonder, like, what was going through Isaac's mind at that time? Like, he's just, he's been away for such a long time, but he knows about the promise and he knows about where he's supposed to be. And he's just restless. And he's like, I don't even know why I'm going to do it, but I'm going to, I'm just going to go wander around in that area and, and just be like closer to whatever the promises that God supposedly had for my family. And I don't understand how that's going to work out because my dad tried to kill me, but I'm just going to go be there. And, you know, and, and then, there there it all happened again there it came back together yeah it's so good good thoughts so yeah i think i think that does it for this episode we've uh we've packed a fair amount of stuff into into uh 40 minutes or whatever yeah i have been so floored by this lesson like it has just rocked me to the core i think i taught on it like three times in 2018 2019 when i I think it was 2018. I, I did three different sermons throughout the year. Uh, it just deeply, deeply impacted me um, at just what it means to just keep walking the path and being able to acknowledge the real stuff and yet walk the path anyway because God shows up. It's so much better to have the story be relatable like this. Absolutely. The, these aren't these like high and mighty patriarchs who are, you know, just a notch below Jesus in, in the perfection level. Like, like they were humans and they were, they were trying to follow God the best as they could. And, you know, they made some really big mistakes sometimes. And I, I think there's just so much comfort we can take in that. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, you know, go back and re- review, uh, episode 11, that, that story, uh, where we talk about the chiasm. That's, that's a, you know, a great perspective on the story. And, we we learned as we went through it the last time that's that's when we learned you know this whole story so uh, another example of of a lot has happened in a few years so review that and uh check out the other links we put in the show notes uh, if you want to get a hold of marty you can find him at uh on twitter at marty solomon and i'm at eibcb so thanks for joining us on the Baymo podcast we'll talk to you again soon